you have your Bibles, open them with me to the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter number three. Thank you, John, for leading us in scripture reading this morning and um, for reminding us to be in much prayer for Mark Hughes. And let me just uh, give a, a word of update and prayer for him this morning from Melissa. Um, she's asking that uh, we would be in prayer for his liver to shrink. He has moved to another room. Uh, and they're just waiting for a nurse or doctor to call her. She is. Uh, she was able to visit with him last night. He's in good spirits because he was being bossy. So that's uh, good, right? <laughs> Some of us, that might be back to normal, right, for us. But his breathing is very labored, and his legs and feet have swollen because of the IV. Uh, pre, uh, please pray at church for him specifically. The next 24 to 36 hours are super crucial. Uh, and she uh, wanted you to know that she is very thankful for all of your support, your prayers uh, as this church family, and, and even the extended community that have reached out and been lifting uh, them up in prayer. She says, we feel so covered uh, with your prayer. And so uh, we need to be praying that his liver shrinks, and um, it needs to in order to stop pushing on his lungs, and especially so doctors can uh, proceed with proper care. His temperature to be normal. It was a little bit elevated last night, uh, and his oxygen levels uh, uh, stabilized to consistent normal. And so um, we do need to be in prayer for him, and I know you have been uh, reaching out, many of you, uh, in one way or another to her or, or to one of the um, leaders in the church, and continue to do that uh, over the next uh, week. And, uh, and I'm so thankful that... Uh, I believe even in saying that, it's almost like preaching to the choir because I believe you are lifting them up in prayer. Uh, and so let's continue to do that. Also, you may have heard uh, that uh, Corey uh, had an accident Friday uh, working on um, a roof. Uh, and he fell and uh, broke an ankle and broke a wrist. And so he was in surgery yesterday. And uh, so we're waiting to hear more news about him. So pray for him uh, and Stephanie and the family as uh, he is recovering. Uh, from that, and uh, I think you'll have to have another surgery coming up this week, so be much prayer for him. Also, it's like a prayer meeting, <laughs> a lot going on. Um, Pastor Ed will be preaching uh, down the road here in just uh, about an hour, hopefully by the time we're finishing up, uh, so let's, let's remember him. Pray with me this morning, church. Father, we thank you so much that we gather together to worship our um, great God and Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, this community of faith in which we uh, are a part of, Lord, so thankful even as we have heard the scripture reading and the prayers and the singing already this morning. And Lord, we pray that you would continue to work in our hearts and stretch our compassion and, and our ability to care for one another. Thank you for what you have done so far. Uh, Lord, we just pray for for more. We pray for that you would work in, uh, in the Hughes family. We pray that you would uh, just give them great comfort and strength in the midst of this. Pray for Mark as he sits uh, a lot of his time 
without family, Lord, that you would just comfort him in the midst of his isolation. Lord, we pray for his family as well to keep their eyes on, on Christ in the midst of all of this. We pray that the, uh, the things that is hindering him and, and the things that's going on with his liver and his oxygen levels, the temperature, God, you would, you would move and work and, uh, in a miraculous way. Lord, we also lift up the Eaton family, Corey and Stephanie, and just pray that you would just uh, be with the doctors, give them wisdom as they work through what's going on there. And, and, and Lord, we pray for a speedy and full recovery from, uh, from the fall. Lord, we, uh, we do thank you for this time we can come and hear and see your word. And we do ask that the Spirit of God would move in our hearts and work in ways in which, which only eternity will, will show us the fullness of. Uh, lift up uh, Pastor Ed as he preaches uh, um, the gospel uh, down the road. We just pray that you would give him wisdom and let your spirit fill him at this morning. Many of our family traveling, and so we just pray for them as well, Lord, that you would give uh, traveling mercies. And in the name of Christ, we ask all these things. Amen. We've been going through the book of Hebrews. Uh, I don't know if I was turned on or not. We've been going through the book of Hebrews, and uh, Greg um, finished up chapter number two while uh, we were gone to the Ligonier Conference and, and then a week of vacation. And that is the first time that I've ever uh, shared a, a series like that with, with someone. And so it's kind of, it's nice to, uh, uh, to be able to count on Greg, his faithfulness to the text, his faithfulness to the Word of God and preaching. Uh, it's kind of awkward, too, because i got to get back in at an awkward position where I left off. So, <laughs> uh, anyway, we're, um, we're here in chapter number 3, verses 1 through 6 this morning. Uh, and I'll read those, and, uh, and then we'll, um, we'll look at them together. My purpose in beginning this series in the book of Hebrews has been that we would be strengthened as a church and encouraged in our faith, particularly in the realm of our perseverance. Uh, and, and really thinking back through this, one of the great uh, appealing doctrines or one of the great appealing factors about the book of Hebrews to me was seen in the fact that here is a church who, who is facing severe persecution for their faith, some uh, even about to walk away from the faith, almost as, as if they were almost saved, which is a, a very... Um, scary and dangerous idea in itself and, and so you see a lot of stuff going on and out of all the things the writer could do what does he do well he preaches to them jesus christ and the, the greatest need that they had was to to be confronted with who christ is and then let that minister to them and strengthen them and so likewise i think in the culture we live in and, and all that you and i are facing today the pressures around us we need that same exhortation the answer is still the same. Uh, we find that strength and source of encouragement as we consider, uh, even in our text, our Lord Jesus. Beginning in verse number one of chapter number three, he's following up um, what he has just spoken, bringing himself back to some application uh, from already speaking about what Jesus Christ has done for us and, and who he is in the ways in which was brought out by Pastor Greg several weeks back. And he begins in verse number one saying, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, 
just as Moses also was faithful in all of God's house. For Jesus had been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the building of a house, has more honor than the house itself, or the builder of the house, I'm sorry, than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Well, working through this, and most commentators and most um, uh, sermons that are preached on this, it has taken different approaches to try to come to understand what exactly the writer is doing. And for the most part, we see that clearly in this designation of Christ being much more than Moses in this comparison. Uh, as, as I was working through this, trying to figure out what is the, the key thought that he is trying to convey to us, uh, the word that comes to mind is faithful, faithful, something repeated both of Jesus and of Moses twice in the passage. Well, faithful itself is, is described as being trustworthy, true, or genuine, something that is consistent, reliable. Uh, we use that about things, don't we? We know there's things in our life, things that we love, things that sometimes are old, and, and yet we go to those because we can count on them. Whether it's a tool, I can uh, just think about how many times you buy a new level and you put it on one side of the wall and it levels one way and you put it on the other side of the wall and it levels one way and you just can't do anything with it. But you know there's certain things that you have that you just go to. There, there's things that are faithful. You can count on them. Uh, my grandmother who cooked it seems soup beans and potatoes uh, we didn't call them that as you know in Tennessee but she cooked soup beans and potatoes and cornbread every day of the week felt like that's all she she could cook she cooked a lot more she was a great cook praise the lord but she always used the same pan an iron skillet I mean it was it was the thing that she used it was trustworthy she counted on it. She relied on it in, in kind of a, a natural sense, as it were, with an item or an object. And we know the significance of faithful, not just in the things that we have that we count on, but in relationships themselves. Marriage is dependent on the reality of faithfulness. You should, as a wife, be able to count on trust in, in your partner and his faithfulness to you, eyes for you alone. It isn't just in the very act of uh, a sensual act of adultery or anything like that, but in the things that we view in, in this digital age where the access to all the, the filth is available to us. We should count on one another to be faithful. Marriage is dependent upon it, and we know the blessedness when that's present, don't we? We also see the evidence in our society of the curse when it's absent. When it's absent. Friendships, again, we know those in our life who who we can call at the drop of a hat or, or at any moment in the middle of the night and wake them up. And, and it might take them a while to get stirred along, but we know that they are, there's someone we can rely on. They're there for us. They're consistent. Not only consistent, but they're trustworthy. But we also know there's those in our life whom we've treated that way. We've ran to like that, and they've shown themselves quite to be the opposite. What a, what a hurt and... And sorrow that fills us with. 
I, I often think, as you think about the word faithful or the idea of faithful, that great desire of most of us, I would say, if we thought about it long enough. And that is to hear those words from our Lord and Savior when we see him. Well done, thou good and what? Faithful servant. That meeting of approval, of acceptance of one who was consistent, trustworthy. And yet we are not always needed to be reminded of that. We do need to, to know these things. We do see the impact of these things. But one of the needs in the church, at least this early church, was to be reminded of faithfulness. Not necessarily their own first. As what we said, it was in the middle of a conflict. It was in the middle of persecution and struggling and, and all of the problems that was coming at them. They need to be reminded of the faithfulness of God, and particularly the faithfulness of Christ. And he does it in a unique fashion. It's quite odd for us as he brings up this Old Testament saint, showing us that Christ stood with those Old Testament saints, but he also reminds us that Christ stood above and over those Old Testament saints. Jesus does the same thing in the Gospel of Luke in chapter number 20 as he, he gives this parable of what it's like as he sends out God who owns a vineyard and he sends out and he makes it and, and puts it in charge of people and he goes on a far journey. And so what he does is he sends forth his servants who, who come from the Father and they come from God and they go to these, this vineyard that belongs to the Father and they, they, they come to receive the fruit of it. And when they come, the, the people that are over it, they beat them. They treat them wrongly. They, they harm them. And Christ said, well, the Father or the owner, he knows what he'll do. He'll send his son. Surely they will show some respect or dignity to the son if I send the son. In that same instance, Jesus is saying that, that he is being sent from the Father just as the Old Testament saints or prophets have been sent from the Father. They're, they're coming with a message to represent God in, in this long line. But, but the son was more than just the prophet. He was the heir, the owner of the vineyard himself. Well, here we come to this one figure in uh, Jewish history in the Old Testament that we find that is quite interesting for us to read. I had a I had an enjoyable time reading Exodus 3 again. If you haven't read that in a while, I would encourage you to do 3 and 4. It's just a great exchange between God and Moses. And um, as I was reading through that, I found it uh, quite enjoyable as I was thinking about how God works and how he uses uh, uses us in different ways. Uh, but I, I don't think that we elevate Moses to the degree, maybe to the degree that he was actually used in redemptive history. And, and I know in, in most cases we don't elevate Moses to the degree that the Jewish people would have had him in their religion, in their thought life as they thought about their faith and, and the very existence of who, they're, who they are as a people. Moses was a significant figure in the Old, Old Testament, second maybe only to the patriarchs. You see the writer bringing this out in, in two statements as he speaks about Moses in verse number 2 and verse number 5, saying that Moses was faithful in all of God's house. Again, in verse number 5, now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant. And it doesn't really matter what we say about ourselves, does it? I mean, it kind of does in, in some ways, but it really matters what God says about us. 
And this is God's estimation of Moses' work. He was faithful. This is what God declared of Moses. Turn with me to the book of Numbers, chapter number 12, and we'll look at that declaration in just a moment. But even in verse number 5, as he, he speaks about Moses being a faithful servant, he's, he's speaking in terms, uh, as one scholar writes, I think it was uh, Moeller, Albert Moeller, who said, uh, the word used here is not your normal slave terminology. He goes on and describes what he means by that. This, this word denotes uh, one who held a position of nobility under the authority of the one who appointed him. Uh, now what he means by that in our minds, if we, if we could get a picture of what he's saying here, think about Joseph in Egypt under Pharaoh. Pharaoh's like, only, I'm the only one that's not going to have to listen to you because I'm Pharaoh. Everybody else... They're under you. So you see this kind of elevated position, even in the terminology uh, of being called a servant. God has exalted Moses in his calling him out to a degree. We see that in Numbers chapter number 12. You have it open. It'd help me to be along there with you, wouldn't it? I normally mark that. There it is. So as he comes in the book of Numbers, what is taking place in chapter number 12, Miriam and Aram have decided to stand up and revolt against Moses. And I want to say this, zeal, zeal without knowledge is dangerous. Here they're considering Moses because he's got a pagan wife or, or wife that is not a Jewish and descent. He's married someone else. And so they're like, they're, they're taken over is kind of what you see here in chapter number 12. And they begin to speak ill of Moses and say, well, the Lord's not only spoke through Moses, has he? I wonder how many heresies has began that way. And, and so they begin questioning Moses' authority, his giftedness. Maybe, maybe they should be given such prominence and privilege as well. After all, Miriam's song and and Aaron being a priest of God and all the things that, that God had done in their life. And so they began to speak ill of Moses in this regard. And, and Moses writing this, as we know, wrote, well, Moses' response in verse number three, look at it with me. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. Now if you're writing this, how would you like to write that about yourself? If you actually were the meekest man on the earth... And yet we see this expression of this uh, through the will of God and the Holy Spirit, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Moses was meek. What is he doing? He's leaving it to God to deal with this. And God deals with it. And suddenly, verse number four, the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and Miriam, come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And there three of them came out and the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam and they came or they both came forward, and he said, Hear my words. That, that's, that's like, listen to me very carefully about uh, what I'm getting ready to say. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream, not so with my servant Moses. Here's the statement that the writer in Hebrews uh, is referring to. He is faithful in all of my house. He's my chosen true servant. He is, he is consistent. He is trustworthy. He is the one I have called to this task. There's something unique about him, at least in this setting, and God's use of him. And, and he shows 
the, the distinction between Moses and the other prophets and, and the other uh, the writers and even the rest of the, the people in the Old Testament. He says, with him I speak mouth to mouth, face to face. How many of you use FaceTime? You know, you, you, you get on FaceTime, you, you do the video call. It's kind of fun if you've combed your hair. I, I find that I talk to some people that, that don't really remember that they're on FaceTime and they're looking up at the ceiling or I'm looking at some awkward thing and, and I'm like, you know, <laughs> let, let's just talk on the phone. So what is God saying here in verse, <clears throat> verse number 8? He's saying, I speak plainly face-to-face with Moses. There's nothing between us. I, I am directly speaking to him. There's a, a clarity. There's a, there's a continuity in, in the what I'm saying and what he's hearing. It's not a mystery. He's not trying to figure this out. It's not a riddle where he's putting the pieces together. Then, then all of a sudden we're going to have the Ten Commandments. And he's saying this is face to face. He is meeting with me and I'm speaking to him. He goes on clarifying that clearly, not in riddles, as, as that reference back into dreams and, and visions. And dreams and visions are, are good in their proper place. In the Old Testament, we see people having them, but they need an interpreter. They need someone to explain what they are. Moses needed no interpreter because God directly spoke to him clearly. Clearly. What an awesome privilege. As you remember, God's speaking to the nation of Israel, and Israel says, no, no, thank you. You speak to him, and we'll do whatever you tell us he says. Because of the fear of being in the presence of God, and yet here is one man who, who is honored when God reveals himself, speaking to him face to face. And he goes on and says, as if to add to that, he beholds the form of the Lord. Now, what does he mean by that? I don't know. People argue about it. Maybe it's the visible manifestation of something that he saw, the burning bush, a pre-incarnate Christ. There's something visible that, uh, that he was able to see with his eyes and his senses. Nevertheless, God is continually saying that there's something significant in the way he was communicating with Moses and the privilege that Moses had received. And, and he goes on in implication says, why weren't you scared to talk evil about him? Think about that. One who has been graced so well, so much by, the, by God himself. Such favor bestowed upon him. To speak ill of him would be speak ill of me. Why weren't you scared? You know, I was thinking about that. And, you know, of course I wrote that down because God says it here. And I didn't really think about it very much. And this morning I was right going over my notes. And I said, think about the grace and privilege and honor you and I have received in Jesus Christ, a revelation more clear, more glorious than that even Moses saw on Mount Sinai as we come to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and God is essentially saying, I am for Moses, and when you stand against him, you're standing against me. But that's what the New Testament tells us as well, doesn't it? If God be for us and, and displays such grace for us, who can be against us? What an encouragement it is as we come to understand those who have received such grace from God and such favor. And if you're in Christ Jesus this morning, you have received much grace and much favor from the Lord of hosts. Moses was faithful, God says. 
He was faithful in all of his house and all of his task over the nation of Israel. As you know, back in Exodus chapter number 3, as we alluded to, it was, it was there that God would call him out from the backside of the desert to go lead a backsliding people on the front side of the desert. That's initially what took place, right? And, and here it is, Moses being, being called out to deliver the people. It, it is so unique because God says, I hear my people's cry and, and I've come to deliver them. And as I was reading that, I, I, I was thinking, well, that's great. They need delivery. And then he tells Moses, oh, yeah, come on on. You're going to do it for me. Wait a minute. Who am I? Moses says. Verse number 12 says, well, God says to him, surely I will go with you. As you read that account, Moses says over in chapter number four, as he, as he makes one excuse after another, please, Lord, send somebody else. <laughs> but he was faithful in going. It would be Moses whom God called out and whom God sent to the nation of Israel and sent up against Pharaoh that would, would show all the signs that God had given him. It would be Moses that would lead them out and would stand with the staff against the Red Sea and God would use him to, to, to part the waters and drown an army. It would be Moses that God would, would come and present himself to on, or, or Moses would present himself in front of on behalf of the people of God on Mount Sinai as he would give him the law and the, and the temple and, and all, or not the temple, the tabernacle and all that God would have for his people. Initially, God used Moses to solidify Israel as a nation, both in their cultic worship practices and their, and their just everyday civil activities. It was through Moses God used in a magnificent way. And it was Moses not only who was sent of God to be used in such a remarkable way of delivering the children of Israel from bondage into the Canaan land, as we'll see a little bit more next week, but it was also Moses who was the true intercessor for the people of God. Aaron surely bore the title of high priest, but as one scholar says, F.F. Bruce, it was Moses who was his people's most effective intercessor with God. You recount that throughout the, the, the wilderness journey. It was Moses time and time again who stands up and pleads on behalf of the people and against their sin, crying and asking for the mercy of God. In one place, Moses says, blot me out of your book. And if you don't go, don't send me with you. Don't talk about favor to me if you don't show that favor to your people. These are your people. And he pleads and pleads for those people. It's Moses who is sinful. We didn't come this morning to, to have an exalted view of Moses or worship him. But sometimes we need to do the work to see why he's saying, don't you see Moses was faithful? They already knew that. No Jew would have doubted it. And you and I might wonder why they had such a high view. Again, because we, we don't see things in that same light. It's not part of our heritage or, or our identity. And yet they did. And here this struggling church is... is not, not questioning Moses' faithfulness. What they're questioning is, is Christ faithful? Is he like him? Is, is he someone I can rest in and, and trust on? Things are tough. Things are hard. Things are difficult. And the writer is doing what, what every good teacher does. He, he, he gives to them something that they understand, something they know, and, and he begins to teach them a lesson about something that they need to be reminded of or something that they need to know. You know how Moses was faithful, don't you? Well, Jesus was faithful. 
Jesus was faithful. Look again with me in the book of Hebrews, chapter number 3. And let me just say this, as we struggle with those, with connecting with Moses and our exalted view of him, we do look to others in our life, some in our family, Christians gone by, faithful people of God who have stand up and, and they lived out their faith and they've preached the gospel or they've sacrificed, they've done much. Their, their faithfulness has been a reminder to us and a, 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 almost a model for us in some ways. But yet in all of that, what, what the writer is doing says even all of that faithfulness is, a, is nothing more than a road sign pointing us to the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Pointing us to the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. We have Christian, we have idolized Christian figures in our present, in our world, what they call celebrity Christians or whatever it might be. We've, we've taken those people from the past. We've named branches of theology after them. We've done all of this, which I think most of them would turn over in their grave if they could do that sort of thing, just because all of their ministry has been pointing us to Jesus Christ over and over, reminding us not of their own faithfulness, but that faithfulness was an outgrowth of the faithfulness of God found here. And that's what the writer is trying to do. He's trying to build the gap in their understanding that that faithfulness of a servant is nowhere near compared to the faithfulness of the son. Notice in verse number one, Moses, God declared to be faithful. The writer reminds us likewise, Jesus is faithful. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in this heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Here speaking to Christians, reminding us that he's referring to the church in the language of holy brothers, those who have been set apart by God, have been saved, sanctified by him. We see that back in, in the previous chapter. Not only holy, but they've been brought together in the family of God, they, they share in this heavenly calling. And think about that for a moment. You know, we share in the curse. How many of you know that? How many of you felt that sharing? Sometimes there's a little too much sharing, isn't there? We, we know what it's like in, in our own bodies. We see it surrounding us. We see it in our bodies. We see it in sickness, in our loved ones, in family, that just the effects of the curse, which we all share in. We, we all have that. Not only that, but the violence and the wickedness and the sinfulness. And, and, and what joy it is to say for those who are born again, we share in a heavenly calling. We share in something else. Speaking of that great salvation, and we share in our confession, that is that commitment, that declaration and commitment to Jesus Christ. But he, but he says all of this is based upon the apostle and high priest. Now, if we were going to, describe Jesus, we wouldn't use the word apostle. It just simply means the sent one. He is the one sent from the Father. The Gospels remind us over and over that Jesus is the sent one. As he sent the prophets in the Old Testament, so he has sent the Son into the world we read. He, he gives the Son in the Gospel of John. And, and really, I think John 17, 3 um, testifies to it most clearly as Jesus defines eternal life for us, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you sent. What is eternal life? Isn't it that intimate knowledge of God and Jesus Christ whom he sent into the world? It 
brings us into that intimate relationship. In Colossians, he says he has, he has brought us into fellowship with the Son. It is God who sends the Son into the world. And, and, and what does he send him for? Well, we find back in uh, Hebrews, verse number 14 and 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Doesn't that remind you back in Exodus? God sending Moses to deliver the children of Israel out of slavery and bondage. Yet now he sends a greater deliverer to bring us out of the bondage of Satan and sin and death. You see, the issue has never been the where you are. It hasn't been the external forces that were weighing over you or, or, or bearing on you. As we find the Jewish people in Jesus' day was looking for a deliverer to deliver them from Rome. And yet the angel says he, come, he has come as a savior not to deliver us from Rome, but deliver us from our own wicked sinful hearts to save his people from their sin. He is sent from God to come and save his people from their sins, to deliver us out of that bondage and out of that slavery. Well, you might ask this morning, well, how did he do? Well, we celebrated Easter last week, didn't we? I think he did pretty good. Death, burial, and resurrection vindicated from God, ascended into heaven, and he sat down at the right hand of the Father. But Jesus explains it this way in John seventeen four. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. Now, you may not think a lot of that at, at the very moment, but I want you to think about that in light of he hasn't died yet and he hasn't rose again, but it is a done deal. It is a done deal. Christ will finish the work that God gave him to do. And what did God say in the midst of all this? Well, he says it right here in Hebrews. He was faithful. He was a faithful high priest. He's a faithful, he's a faithful deliverer. He's a faithful, he's a faithful savior. But he goes on, not only speaking of his faithfulness in, in his being sent to us as an apostle or a representative from God, be as faithful as being a high priest. And really the rest of Hebrews will kind of flesh this out, what it means that Christ was our high priest. Coming back from First Samuel, or coming out of First Samuel 2. Uh, 35 he reads or we read this and I will raise up a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind and I will build a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever all the way back in Samuel there's an anticipation of a faithful priest whom God will build a house for He's saying that this high priest that is prophesied, that was anticipated is nothing other than Jesus Christ himself. He is faithful. He is faithful. Just as Moses stood in, in the gap and interceded for the nation of Israel over and over, God worked powerfully through those prayers. Think how much more God works through the prayers of his own son who seated at the, who seated at the right hand of the Father. Think about that. God, the Son, Christ, the second person of the Trinity, eternal fellowship with the Father is, is praying, interceding for you even this morning. Constantly bringing your name before God in prayer. 
As you read John 17, that high priestly prayer, and you go through that, no need to at this particular moment, we might ask, what does, what does Jesus pray for? I'll just list a few of these if you're taking notes. One, he prays that we might behold his glory. Two, he prays that our joy may be full. Three, he prays that the Father will keep us. And four, he prays that we will be sanctified and we will be one and that we will be with him. Think about Jesus saying to the Father, his Father that he's been in fellowship with for eternity, I want them with me. I desire them to be where I am. Now, you may feel lonely, and sometimes we do in this world, don't we? Isolated, not even like you've got a friend in the world. No one knows what you're going through. No one knows what you've experienced or what you've been through. No one knows your lot in life. You struggle. The Bible says there's a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. There's someone who has your name on his lips eternally before the Father. Jesus Christ, your faithful high priest. He prays for you. He loves you. Desires for you to be with him. Think of that. You live this life in all your sorrow. And many times the devil brings about those accusations. God has forgotten me. He doesn't care about me. Oh, he cares, beloved. He cares. So much so that he says, Father, I want them, they're mine, that they can be with me in fellowship. We have a faithful high priest. In the midst of your trials and struggles that you face day in and day out, know this, that the, that the son, the one true high priest is praying for you. And now what joy and encouragement is to know that Miss Jan is praying for me. I, I think that's an encouragement. And others, but but to know that even in the midst of that, when all of that knowledge is, is left me, that, that there's one whose prayers is never hindered, there's one whose prayers that is that, that is never gone unanswered, there's one who's praying and lifting my name up, and it isn't it isn't bound in 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 all of the limitations of this life. It's eternal wisdom and knowledge and understanding of the will of God. The Son prays for me, intercedes for me. Even in the midst of my sin that I give in to in the midst of your sin this morning, it is the Son who sustains us before the throne of grace. I love that song we sung last week as he thinks about the accuser of the devil as he makes his accusations and causes us to despair. He says, I look into the throne and I find him there, ever living, making intercession for me. What a great hope and promise that we have this morning. The faithfulness of the Son, not only as our apostle and as our high priest, but faithful as the builder of the house of God. Notice with me, he goes on and says in verse number three, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, much more glory than the builder of a house has more than the house itself. He goes on and speaking about for the house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify to the things that's come, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a, a son. Moses was used dramatically by God. He was sinful. It speaks to the grace of God and that ability to hit straight with a crooked stick. But not so with the son. 
as high and as has much honor that Moses received, much more honor is given to him who owns the house, who, who all of it belongs to. He's the son to the father. That's what the writer is saying, that, that you have, you, you've been confident in Moses and that he was sent by God. Don't you know that Christ is much more glorious, much more honorable than even that noble man Moses that you've looked up to? You can trust him. He's faithful. You can lean on him. You can rest in him. You can take him at his word. He doesn't lie. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't promise and, and not give. He's consistent and he's reliable. Now we know he's not speaking about a house and a building of wood and sheetrock, right? You know he's not talking about paint and carpet and all that stuff that we get wrapped up in and get excited about. And he's talking about you. He's talking about me and he's talking about brothers and sisters all over this world. Christ will build his church despite what may come, despite what temptation, what pressure, what violence comes against the church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. The gospel will be triumphant. Christ will have his bride. He's building his church. And praise God for that. And he's telling this struggling group of believers, don't you know he's building a house and you're part of it? You're part of it. Hold fast is what his encouragement is in verse number six. That Christ is faithful, don't you see? In much more honor and much more glory and majesty. He says, he says, we are indeed his house if we hold fast that confidence and our boasting and our hope. Our confidence isn't in mere men and it isn't in, in, in all this stuff that we could rest in and take confidence in. Our confidence is in Jesus Christ and in him alone. In him alone. How do we not lose our confidence? Well, he gives us the answer back in verse number one. By meditating, by considering Jesus. And you and I have enough in this life to pull at us, to distract us. I feel like every time that, that I need to do something, sitting down and thinking, I got ADD really bad, you know. And, you just, and it isn't just that. We live in a world that's chaotic, fears. Not just distractions of everyday life, but fears that, that grip us and pull us away and, and just, just blind us to the truth of the gospel and the confidence in Jesus Christ. And, and he's, he's dealing with that in that church. And he's saying that, that in the midst of all of that, we, we bring our minds back to who this one is. We bring our minds back to Jesus Christ. We consider him because he is faithful. As what we've already mentioned, he will never let us down. He will never fail us to follow through with his promises. He did all that was needed to save us. And I promise you that he will keep what you have committed to him if you have come to him by faith. We consider him because he is worthy, as we've mentioned, much more worthy. And that, that brings us back to this point, beloved. Our theology should lead to doxology. We, we know and that knowledge and understanding of who Christ is leads us to praise. Right? As we consider Christ, it not only feeds our mind and our understanding of who it is, it fills our hearts. It fills our passion, our love, our desire. It, it leads us to praise God. But how do we consider him? Or what does it mean to consider him? Well, it means to look at very intently. Uh, means to, to consider something in your mind, mull it over and learn a lesson by it. 
Don't you like those people in your life where, they, where you ask them for an answer and they say, you know, they take the long way around. They want to say, well, let's look at this. And what do you think about this? And they're just working you through this whole process. And you just wanted a yes or no. Just Google it. Probably next time is what you'll do instead of asking them, right? And, and what they're trying to do, at least I suppose is what they're trying to do, they're trying to get you to think about it. They're trying to get you to process life so that the next time you will think about it and maybe not ask them because they're busy and and their coffee's getting cold or whatever the case may be. Well, that's the idea used here when he says that we're to consider him. He says we're to, to play over like you would a mistake and, and learn from your failures how not to repeat that. Or, or as Jesus would say, consider the lilies. And he's saying, look at these things and intently work your understanding of the Father and let it teach you a lesson. Let it teach you a lesson. In that same way, we're to consider who Jesus is and what he has done for us. What the gospel teaches us over and over, reminding us through the chaos of life that, uh, of his love, of his presence, of his goodness and kindness, of his faithfulness. Now in the midst of our own temptations, that which would be our natural uh, inclination could be curbed through the power of the Spirit of God and the understanding of who Christ is and the following in obedience and perseverance. You and I all need that, that encouragement to, to keep on walking, to keep on trusting, to keep on believing. And as we consider Christ, as we think about who he is, that, that food for our soul and our minds, it, it gives us that extra spiritual strength that we need. He's saying you're looking at everything going on in this life and every fear and what's going to happen. So and so is not with us today because of this and they're coming to get people and and the corona and everything shut down, that would be in our own modern day, right? And we process that over and over. And he says, no, bring your minds back to Christ, the gospel. Consider here, consider him. And it takes discipline and intention, doesn't it? But he also, we consider him because of the danger of not being found in him. Verse number 6 he says, but Christ is faithful over the house of God as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Now this is the start of his exhortation of perseverance. He's not saying that, that if we keep ourselves saved, if we keep ourselves holding on, then, then at the end we will be saved. As some have taught from this passage, you could lose your salvation or you know, it's your will, you chose salvation, so it's your will, you unchoose salvation kind of theology that is prevalent in the world and has been through Christianity. He's not teaching that at all. Christ keeps us or we're not kept at all. Can I say that again? Christ keeps us or we're not kept at all. It is always much more his grip on us than our grip on him. And, and some of you know that, don't you? Amen? He will hold me fast. <laughs> He will not let my soul be lost. And yet what he does remind us is that this perseverance, uh, this reality of pursuing Christ is evidence, evidence of being in Christ. As some in the church he, he uh, make note of, he changes his language here um, uh, later on as he speaks about brothers and not holy brothers. But, but this, this truth that if we are in Christ then we keep holding on to Christ. And some in the church may have been close 
very door associated with the church and all the other things that you see over and over mentioned here, and yet they never truly fully trusted in him. The evidence of their drifting and walking away and clinging on to the next thing coming or what they left behind was evidence that they never had their hope set in Jesus Christ. And that's a warning to us, beloved, this morning. It's an encouragement to remind me that my faith is secure in Jesus Christ, but it is a warning and a reminder to me that there is no, no security outside of Jesus Christ. And what does that do to your heart and your soul when you hear that this morning? Does it bring you back to lay hold of the gospel, to be encouraged by the reality that, no, this is my hope, this is my trust, this is my boast? Or does it push you away from him? Does it stir up fear and trepidation in your heart? And I would encourage you, if it does this morning, come to him. I was speaking to someone close to me, and I was reminding him last night that God is not a liar, one of the most most secure, comforting passages in all the Bibles found in Titus 2, isn't it? 1, 2. God who cannot what? That's pretty good. That's really good. And he says to us that as many as received him gave he the authority or gave he the power or the right to become the what? As many as believed on his name. The answer of our security and insurance isn't found in the chaos of the world, but it's found in this one faithful apostle priest that is Jesus Christ the righteous. And if you don't know him, you're not trusting in him this morning, let me just encourage you. He is faithful. He can hold you up. He is not only consistently who he is because he is a God who does not change, but he is trustworthy in the midst of everything that we go through. He's faithful. What an encouragement to us this morning because we don't need a uh, we don't need an amateur redeemer. We don't need one who is filled with much chaos as we are. We need one who is consistently faithful and trustworthy. And he's saying, Church, you've got that in Jesus. Trust him. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this morning that we gather together. Thank you for your love. You've provided us all things that we need for life and godliness. And you provide them through your word, through the word, and the power and the work of your Holy Spirit that works among us. And Lord, I just pray that you'd take what little bit has been said this morning and all of the, all of the, the words and that you'd sift through it in each of our hearts, Lord, and that you would just encourage us or remind us of our faithful foundation, our faithful founder, and friend, Jesus Christ. What encouragement that is. And Lord, I pray for those here this morning that are still reluctant, wondering, can, can I really trust him with my life? Can I really trust him with my, my kids or my finances or whatever it is, Lord? I pray that you'd let that be settled even today. That they would wholeheartedly put their faith and trust in him for their salvation and for their life their eternity and we'll give you the glory for that in Jesus name. Amen.